Up until last year, Sarah Unsicker had never run for elected office before. But after winning a hotly contested state House race, the Shrewsbury Democrat is now serving in the Democratic superminority. But she's been working with Republicans on a number of key issues, and she talked about that on the latest edition of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast, the only show about Missouri politics featuring a co-host who refuses to upgrade his iPhone for the foreseeable future. (laughs) I am that host, Jason Rosenbaum, the interim political editor for St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Uh, Colleague Joe Manis, who shares two key things with our guest. And our guest today is... State Representative Sarah Unsicker. So, so Joe, what are those two things before we start? Just a full disclosure. The first thing is that I live in Webster Groves, as most people know, because I harp about it all the time. And and Ms. Unsicker, um, her district includes part of Webster Groves. Yes. And my part. And the second thing is that this is something that I'd forgotten until just a few minutes before. We went to the same college. Yes, Valparaiso University in northern Indiana. Yes. Yes. This is the only reason I decided to have our guests on today. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, by the yeah, way. Yeah, Valpo, among other things, has the largest, uh, it used to be the largest college chapel of mm-hmm. anybody outside of the, uh, I guess, the uh, Air Force Academy. Really? I didn't know that. It's a beautiful chapel, though. Yeah. So um, rather than find more commonalities between you and Joe, the, the, one thing, people to death. the one thing I do want you to do before we get into your background is just tell our, our, our listeners where your district is. Well, my district is, um, it's Web- parts of Webster Groves, like Joe says, parts of Crestwood, all of Shrewsbury, a sliver of Marlboro, and a couple precincts in St. Louis City. Including some precincts in the 16th Ward. One in the t- 16th and one in the 23rd. All right. You know, that is so odd. It that is they really did strange. That. I mean, that, I, you know, yeah. that's a little odd. There, there were a lot of districts that were drawn after 2012, which you could classify as odd. The, the oddest one has to be Gina Mitten's district that goes mm-hmm. from, like, South City to Kirkwood, a, a district which really has very little in common with each other, at least with your district, and I'm in your district all the time because I live literally next door to it, right. you know, it has some geographical commonalities that it pairs like Crestwood and Shrewsbury and Webster, which are all pretty close together. Yes. So I guess your district, while it does have some peculiar aspects, is not the oddest district in the St. Louis district, St. Louis region. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and and why you decide to get involved in Missouri politics. Right. Well, I, um, I lived with my family in Shrewsbury for 12 years. We lived in St. Louis most of my adult life. Let's see. My background is I went to Wash U Law School, and I'm a lawyer. I did family and education law. I'm not practicing right now. 
Um, and I got into politics because I've always been interested in policy and political issues, and I wanted to make a difference. So, so the famous question, where did you go to high school? Oh, I knew you were going to ask that. Well, I gave her a, I, I gave her a warning, folks. <laughs> okay. So. But I went to high school in Texas. Where, where at? Plano, Texas. Okay. It was a huge high school, Plano Senior High School. How huge was it? I'm just curious. My graduating class had 1,200 people. You actually have a cl- class that's larger than my high school in suburban Chicago, which was about 1,000. Right. But I believe that's bigger than any high school in Missouri because I think the biggest one is Hickman. I don't think they're at 1,000 yet. So yeah. so I guess we. I guess that's one thing you have in common with me as opposed to just Joe at this point. Yes. Yeah. I mean, okay. that's, that's very good because that's 50% lot higher than my whole high school. In yeah. Indiana, so okay. So your your uh, district became open after Jeannie Kirkton termed out of the legislature, yes. and it was, I would classify it on paper as a competitive race. I think the Republicans spent a lot of money trying to win it back, and by winning it back, I mean they haven't held a district with Webster Groves in it for well over a decade at this point. But you actually ended up winning by a pretty comfortable margin. I think about yes. thirteen percentage points. Was this one of those instances where Donald Trump's presence on the ballot actually hurt the Republican opponent? Because it seems like Hillary Clinton was probably pretty popular in places like Webster Groves and Kirkwood. Yeah, Hillary Clinton got a large margin of votes. She got almost 60 percent of the votes in, in my part of Webster Groves. So, Which is kind of fascinating because it does show how that part, I mean, okay, if you look at the statewide and look at that district, how so polar opposite it right. is. I mean, because Trump carried the state by a little over 18 percentage points, and then you've got Hillary Clinton winning in your district by about 60, which just shows that there are some parts of the state where the district's views and how they see issues is starkly different from statewide issues. And I've seen yes. it on, on the opposite side in some years, but this right now, obviously, it's it's the... Republicans controlling the state and um, your district being very strongly progressive. Yeah. What what sort of the, what are some of the big issues that you found going door to door when when you were campaigning? A lot of people didn't like Trump. Um, Why? Um, his propensity, um, his sexual molestation record. Um, and just, I think just the way he is, you know, they, they thought that, I think people in my district want someone who's more thoughtful and he acts without thinking a lot of times, I think. So Trump was a big issue, but were there any particular issues in policy that were Education was a big issue. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that your district is, it includes, what, two or three different school districts? Or three. Three. Afton, Lindbergh, and Webster Groves. And I think people actually move into your district for the schools more often than not. So right. did they tell you that they weren't happy with the way Republicans were handling education? Did they think that your views on it were more in line with what they wanted? What was kind of what they were telling you when you were, when you were campaigning? I think school finance was a big issue. Um, Taxes are high in all the, all the districts, all the school districts in my district. And the state pays a very low percentage of what it costs to educate a school, a student in these districts. Yeah, and just to explain a little bit to our listeners, most of you may know this, but some of you may not. 
The state has a very complicated formula for, for, for doling out state aid to school districts. The right. bottom line is that school districts that are considered prosperous, and this generally is the St. Louis area, in some cases, these schools, less than 10% of the money that they have, that they collect, comes from the state. Whereas mm-hmm. you've got outstate where it could be, uh, in some rural districts, it, it could be a flip where maybe 70% of their money comes from the state. So there's uh, always a lot of tension. I mean, this has been going on for decades where you've got the legislators representing the St. Louis area districts that don't get much money who are saying how they're not treated fairly. Um, so there's always this uh, tension, fair or unfair, right. that, that, and then they get upset when the state imposes certain restrictions on them because they're like, well, you're not putting the money in anyway. So why should you have a say in this? I'm not defending it. I'm just kind of laying this out, the climate um, that the representative has to deal with in her district. So how does that play out in the General Assembly right now? Well, I dealt with one of those issues um, quite a bit during budget process, which was the public placement fund. That's the amount of money school districts get for foster kids. And that was very important to me. Webster Groves has two residential facilities, um, and a lot of kids go there who are placed by the foster care system. So that was cut this year. It was zeroed out initially in the budget, and at the end of the day, it was $5 million. If it were fully funded, it would be $16 million. But the Webster Grove School District estimates about $400,000 that they're losing because of the public placement fund changes. So... The foster kids, let's say there's foster kids in Webster, okay, so mm-hmm. they go to the Webster school. So because of this, of the cut, does that mean that the school, the public school gets less Yes. Uh, for educating that child yes. as compared to other students? Mm-hmm. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. So basically, the taxpayers in Webster Groves are picking up the tab for educating foster kids in the district. Yeah, because the school because district the school. is not getting as much state money as they say they should be getting. Right. So that probably is replicating, though, across the state. It's not just a Webster Groves problem, I would imagine. It is. It's a lot more significant for school districts that have a residential facility in them. Mm-hmm. But, for example, um, special school district got $3 million of the public's placement fund last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's school districts who don't get anything from that to fund. So. Yeah, because Webster, because, yeah, there are two residential facilities where they're like group group homes, group homes. in effect, where yeah. a lot of foster, you know, where they have foster kids or kids who've been abused, and that's where they're, they've been removed from their parents. It was not an easy budget year for the Missouri legislature, to put it mildly. And we've had people on this show talk about different programs that were cut because of this reality. Um, so this was probably one of those examples did you get kind of an explanation from the governor's office or the Republicans that control the budgetary process why this was initially zeroed out and why it wasn't put up to the $16 million mark that it should be at? I think it was because the budget appropriations chair didn't understand what it was for. Um, initially, when I explained it on the floor, he disagreed with me and said it wasn't for foster kids. He later came back and said, I'm sorry, I didn't know it was for foster kids until until I had said something. Um, what did he think it was for? He thought it was for kids in residential placements, but he didn't realize that was for foster kids in residential placements, mm-hmm. as well as kids who are educated in the 
general school district. More, more generally, so this was probably one of the examples of, of one of the things you did when you entered the legislature. I, I would be interested as somebody who ran for office for the first time and is in kind of an elected body for the first time, what your general impressions were of being a Democrat in the Missouri House, because it's not an easy time. There's only like 44, 45, 45 now, 45. But it does seem like the, the House Democrats were able to make a stand on many important issues and influence the process as you just laid out right now. We did. It's frustrating. Um, I appreciate Todd Richardson, the Speaker of the House, for letting us speak on the floor and letting us have some influence. We didn't have influence on every issue, but on most things, we got to have our say, usually. Do you think that that's going to continue after Todd Richardson leaves? Because I know that we've had, again, we've had a lot of Democrats come on the show and say, Mm -hmm. we disagree with Todd Richardson on a whole host of policy issues, but we've appreciated the fact that he has not shut us out or has let us play a, a role in some issues. Do you think that that's going to continue with Elijah Har? I really hope it will. Um, I don't know Elijah that well, so I can't say, you know, what he's going to do, but I hope he will continue in that. I mean, since the Republicans have a veto-proof majority, um, aside from the Speaker reaching out and letting guys speak, do you feel that you're getting much respect at all, or is it like, they don't need you? I mean, they really don't. They really don't, (laughs) and I feel like they listen. When I go and talk to them, I feel like I get listened to and heard. They might disagree. Um... It's frustrating because a lot of times it feels like we're working from different sets of facts. What happened with the public placement fund is one of those examples where I looked into it. I knew what it did, um, whereas the appropriations chair had a different view of what it did. And I think that influenced what happened with it. I do want to talk about a couple of other issues where the Democrats and Republicans were on different sides. One is in-home care cuts, which is yes. an issue that we're still talking about now because th- there, after veto session, the House budget chairman, along with some senators, talked about forging a, a new way forward to restore the cuts. And they even talked about a possible special session just to come up with something new because right. it, this does affect, I mean, at least 8,000 people. If and not some, more. Yeah, oh, it, if more. not more. Some say it's actually closer to 20. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm interested, before we talk about, uh, you know, the machinations about whether it be a special session, have you heard from constituents about whether this is personally affecting either them or people that they know? I, I'm interested in that first. I've heard from a lot of people about how it's affecting people. Um, consumer-directed services is one of the budget cuts, and that was cut by 40 percent. Um, those are services for people who have physical impairments and need some help maybe getting up in the morning or getting their food made. Um, and those services were cut for 40%, by 40%, so they might have to choose between getting a hot meal and getting up in the morning. Yeah, and so. for, some, many, for some of these affected people, it could affect whether or not they can stay in their homes or independent nursing yes. home, which then ends up, because most of these people that get these services are already low income, the state then would be stuck with a higher tab if they're in a nursing home, right. which is the reason they have the program to begin with. So I know that we've had a number of Republicans on the show, and they're concerned as well. And the bottom line was there was a one-year fix, they thought. 
the governor veto that because he, he didn't like the way that was done. But I know there's been a lot of discussion about, well, how can they fix it? Um, so that's something that the governor can accept, but then do it as soon as possible, either special session or when they first get into session in January. Right. What are you hearing? Well, there's a difference in opinion, of course, between the Democrats and Republicans on what should, on how that should be fixed. The Republicans want to change the circuit breaker tax. Yeah, which would basically, which would, they want to eliminate the tax break for low-income and elderly renters. Yes. Um, so that would basically be taking money from one group of seniors and giving it to another. Um, and these are people who are vulnerable people, and we really need to be working to help them if we help anybody in the state. I mean, how would you fix it? There are some tax discounts. Um, there's a sales and use tax discount where retailers get a discount for filing their sales tax in a timely manner. And that would bring in $117 million if we, if we cut that. So, so, but is there a lot of pushback from business groups to do that? From there is heard? some, yes, because they probably but. like the fact that they get a discount on their taxes right. to do that. At and the same time, you know, consumers don't realize that not all of the those sales tax they're paying are going to the government. You know, two percent is going back to those businesses that pay it in a timely manner. So we're talking about a program that that. About twenty million in cuts. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about would bring in like 117. You said if we cut it to zero. From if you 2%. cut it to zero, let's say you only cut it partially, mm -hmm. whatever. What other sort of ideas are the Democrats coming up with to counter the circuit breaker cut? Or is um, that the big one? That's the big one: is reducing those tax discounts. Yeah, and I think it, and I think that type of idea is important in this situation because. HCB3, even the, the Democratic proponents conceded it was a one-time fix for a longer-term problem. So right. it was essentially keeping the, the, the health care services in place while a longer-term solution is, is done. We had Representative Justin Alferman on this show about two weeks ago, and he mm -hmm. pretty much said that the circuit breaker idea is the only palatable thing for the House Republicans. I don't yes. think the Senate Republicans actually like that idea. No, they don't. That's a... Circuit breaker is a non-starter for both the House Democrats and for the Senate Republicans. So, so. even if, let's say there's not a special session, but there there is some urgency to do something at the beginning of next year, right. if that conflict is still in place, are you concerned that there may not be a long-term solution to restore these cuts? I am, and it's a real problem. We need to be taking care of the, of the people who are being cut here the elderly and disabled mostly. We need to be helping them. Well, looking, I mean, we're already in mid-October. Uh, Pre-filing for the next session begins in like five or six weeks. Right. Um, what are you going to be, what will be your key issues that you're going to be filing bills on? And what about, I mean, ones that you're hearing from other people? Yeah. My key issues are going to be um, employment for people with disabilities and infant and maternal mortality. Okay, you want to explain that? Like what sort of bills? Um, for employment for people with disabilities, I'm going to be working on what's called Employment First, which says that um, government agencies that provide services to people with disabilities need to focus first on getting them employment in the competitive marketplace if they can. 
and if the people want that. That's actually interesting that you're mentioning that because there was actually a legislative fight locally in the city of St. Louis after the minimum wage was increased about whether to increase the minimum wage for developmentally disabled people in, in right. sheltered workshops. Yes. And I hope I'm getting the terminology right with that. If I'm not, mm-hmm. I apologize. But I think that the, the conflict there was some of these entities that employed people with developmental disabilities could only operate by paying the employees a very, very low wage. And by raising it even to 9 or $10 an hour, many said that they couldn't remain in the city anymore. Is it related to something like that, or is it, is it something else in, in particular? Um, I think the sheltered workshops, there's a movement to phase them out in, at the federal level. And I think within 20 years, they will be phased out. Right now, they're a part, an important part of the infrastructure of how we care for people with disabilities. And we need to be working now on an option for people, you know, on different ways to care for them and make sure that they're, if they can take care of themselves and, or, and that they're taken care of for people who can't take care of themselves. It's a really important thing, not only for the families of, of the, the, the disabled, but also for the, the people themselves. Because yes. a lot of times when they, they have a, a job like this, they can not only support themselves, but it's an integral part of their life. Is that kind of yes. what you found talking with people on this issue? Yes, it is. I mean, working is, for most people, an integral part of their life. Well, it's a matter of self-worth. It is. And so why is the federal government phasing them out or phasing out its support for them? There's a big push among the disability community that people need to be employed if they can and employed at the minimum wage or above, you know, at a living wage. But the problem is, though, suppose, I mean, in some cases, the shelter workshop jobs might be the only ones that were open to them. So then it does it become a case of either you have a job or you don't? That's why I'm working to build the infrastructure um, so that it's there if the sheltered workshop closes. Mm-hmm. So that more people have jobs. Less, there's Right now there's a waiting list for sheltered workshops. And we, you know, people who need those services need help. And um, otherwise a lot of people end up sitting on the couch watching TV, which is not healthy for them. Have you gotten any of your Republican colleagues interested in this issue? Because oftentimes the way Democrats find uh, traction is by partnering with Republicans. This seems, as you mentioned, is going to be an issue that people are going to need to work on for the next few years. I'm interested to hear if some of your Republican colleagues are interested, too. Yes, they are. Uh, On your second aspect, um, infant mortality, I'd like you to explain more about that. Well, Missouri has high rate of infant mortality and a high rate of maternal mortality. I think we rank 36th for infant mortality and 42nd for maternal mortality, and our rates are going up. This is women who are dying within a year of childbirth. You mean 42nd? You mean 41 states do better? Yes. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So these are women who die within a a year of childbirth or infants who die within a year. What's the main reasons? For women, a lot of the reason is hemorrhaging um, and heart disease. Those are the two big reasons. And, I mean, are they just not getting enough care? I mean... That's part of it. Um, we need a perinatal consortium that provides standardized care across the state. 
no matter what hospital you go to, and that it's evidence-based. I have legislation um, that I'm going to introduce for a maternal mortality review board to look at these deaths and figure out what we can do differently and how we can reduce the number of maternal deaths. Well, there's a couple different things going on. In fact, I mean, there's been some national stories. You may have seen them. Uh, The United States has one of the highest uh, uh, mother mortality rates in the developed world. And a lot of it, what they're saying, is because there has been not enough attention um, or um, education uh, among uh, on obstetricians mm-hmm. uh, when they're learning about you know possible complications, and some of it has to do with not enough uh, prenatal um, care screening to pay attention to some of this stuff. Uh, when something like this happens, it happens very quickly. I mean, yes. I'm a mother. I've had two kids, and frankly, both of my births were rather exciting, so to speak. <laughs> so I understand how, frankly, I wouldn't be here. I mean, mm-hmm. especially after my – neither my daughter or I would be around <laughs> now. But well, um, you are. But the point being is that, you know, f- 50 years ago, more women died. But now in many countries, they've managed to – really monitor what happens so when she gives birth they monitor this because many women they give birth and it seems okay and then all of a sudden 20 minutes later they're dead right and And people women can bleed out very quickly um when they hemorrhage after a childbirth yeah so you have i mean there's i mean there's lots of i mean many major novels in history are based on some of this stuff war and peace um (laughs) for example but i mean my point is so how do you get people in in state government or in the health department or whatever to focus on this especially when Missouri apparently has one of the is not in good standing in a country that right now is not in good standing on this issue mm-hmm. I'm going to be working with my Republican colleagues and my Democratic colleagues where there's a couple other bills some other people are introducing to reduce maternal mortality as well. It's another example where there might be bipartisan consensus that something needs to be done. I mean, I think it's a really important issue across the board. Um, If people are pro-life, they don't want moms to bleed out. They want moms to be around to take care of their babies. I mean, this is sort of a universal issue. Nobody wants to see It's not a partisan issue. Another issue that will probably come up when the the legislature comes back is fallout from what's called Senate Bill 43, which was a bill that made it much more difficult to win employment discrimination cases. Yeah, I I wrote about this. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that came out last week, but for many Democrats is not a surprise, is that the U.S. U.S. Department of Housing and what urban is, development. Yeah, yeah, housing and uh, urban development. Yes, I got the acronyms wrong there. Uh, they, 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 a letter came to the forefront saying that they're no longer going to contract with Missouri to, to hear fair housing uh, law cases because of this law. And, and this apparently they got this letter in July, and this just came out publicly like last week. Yeah, we That's found right. out about it because the House Minority Leader put the letter in a press release, which caused a big uproar. For, for many people. But as I kind of mentioned, it's not really a surprise because there were warnings that this would occur when this bill was being debated. Is that correct? There were. And even before it was being seriously debated, um, there was a letter that went from the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development to, I believe, the Missouri Human Rights Commission in February 
saying that if the law passed, if the bill passed the way it was written, that we would lose that $500,000, half a million dollars. Yeah, I mean, and, and by, while well, well, that's a lot of money, in the, in the case of the state's overall budget, it's not huge. But right. still, it does have an impact. And in fact, this issue did come up during the floor with, and there were some Republicans in the House who were arguing again in favor of saying we at least have to make some changes. I mean, because there was some, it was one of the more intelligent debates I've watched in the House, whichever side you're on, because um, people were really grasping that there were some problems with the bill. Yet it passed anyways. Yet it passed anyways. Did you get a sense of what the big driving factor was to pass this bill? Because I certainly saw the anti-argument. There was an all-out press from a lot of different legal and, and, you know, NAACP to, to kill this bill. But I also saw kind of a push from like business groups to, to pass it. What was yeah. what was the environment around this bill? I'm, I'm curious to hear about that. I think the big push was from business groups in the Missouri Chamber. This bill has been ar- around in some form for 10 years. It was, I think it was worse this year than it had been in previous years. But because it made discrimination basically the only reason someone is fired in order to bring a lo- discrimination lawsuit. Yeah, yeah, you you have to prove not that not that it was that it wasn't among being the, the reasons reason. that it was the reason. And what was fascinating was that we had two prominent Republicans, uh, Jay Barnes and Shamed Dogan, who were giving the legal arguments about what the problems with this bill were. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it was fascinating that some of the most passionate. Uh, objections were from Republicans. But again, it, but it passed anyway. It passed anyways. Do you think that there's going to be a push to change this so Missouri's no longer in non-compliance with HUD? Have you heard anything about that yet? I haven't heard about that yet. Should that should um, that happen though? I mean, I obviously I'm, I'm assuming that you think yeah. it should, but explain why. I mean, I think I mean, we're losing the ability to investigate housing discrimination cases which, you know, we're losing full-time employees of the government and we're and people are going to be able to be discriminated against in housing. It's going to increase, you know, segregation in Missouri because people will be able to say, you know, we don't want, want you living there because for whatever reason and because you're black, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, that's, it's a terrible situation to be in. I imagine that would be the case because if it's more difficult to prosecute housing discrimination, you may see more instances where, you know, blatant segregation happens because there's no way to enforce against it. Yes. Um, So are there any other issues that you've heard either that you're going to be involved with or your Democratic colleagues are going to be involved with um, when the legislature gets back into session in next year? Minimum wage is going to be a big issue. Um, We're going to bring in bring in proposals to increase the minimum wage, similar to the ballot measure that's out being petitioned right now. That's very interesting. And I I wonder maybe if the Republicans would be willing to pass a smaller minimum wage increase to kind of head off the ballot initiative at the pass. pass. I'm I'm getting that saying wrong. I apologize for everybody. No, no, pass. That happens. But is that a possibility or are they just so against raising the minimum wage that this is going to be a, a Democratic issue, but with no real bipartisan agreement? You know, I don't know about that. I, I really don't know what's on their mind. That's a good point that they might want a smaller minimum wage increase to head off the ballot measure. 
But um, research shows that people need about 11 or $12 an hour to have a sustainable lifestyle in Missouri. Now, what is your proposal as far as what would you propose that the minimum wage go to, or is it a phase-in? It's a phase-in. It's it's just... It's going to be the same, I think, as the ballot petition. And the ballot petition, if I'm not mistaken, would gradually raise it to $12 an hour by, I yes. think, 2023, 24. I'm not exactly sure so. of the year. But it, it's a it's a gradual phase in. Um, you know, the reason why I think it's actually notable that there is actually money and organization going into this minimum wage increase is the last time it was on the ballot in 2006, I believe, passed in every county in the state. And a lot of people, what was interesting, there really wasn't that much major opposition to it because people were distracted. And I think some business groups didn't think it would pass. Yeah. And it passed hugely. So would you try to put this on the ballot or do you want to just pass it, make it state law and just have it go into effect as, as a law? Um, I, I think either way it would be a win for Missouri residents. So at this point, I mean, looking ahead towards 2018, do you think the fact that it's an election year is going to affect what's debated? And kind of how do you how do you see Democrats approaching this, at least from your perspective? Well, right now we talked about different policy pro- um, possibilities or different policy ideas over the weekend um, and came up with a list of over 160 different policies that we want to introduce. They won't all pass, we know that, but different policies in criminal justice, in health care, in education that we want to work on. You said like 160 different policy ideas, and one of them yeah. you said mentioned was on the, in the criminal justice realm, which is obviously right. a big topic of discussion now um, in St. Louis. Do you think anything will come out of the legislature post-Stockley next year? And if so, what do you think it will be? I'm hoping that we'll have things come out of the legislature. Um, I'm hoping that I know there's a push for body cameras, and that's popular among my constituents, too. Um, there's got to be a whole lot of research that's going to be done before we can pass anything on body cameras because there's sunshine law issues, there's funding issues, and there's issues frankly, with police officers turning off their body cameras and what, when do they get to do that? Yeah, and that was an issue I think it was debated a couple of years ago where they kind of brought up some parameters around them, but it wasn't right. like a bill that provided grants or funding for uh, police departments to, to set them up because it's, it's not just the cameras that are expensive, it's also the storage. Yeah, right. And that's often, and I think that's one of the things that's hanging up St. Louis City from doing body cameras have you heard anything about like bringing in outside prosecutors or investigators whenever there's a police involved shooting because that is a that was something that was brought up post Ferguson but it also ran into some bipartisan opposition what do you think mm-hmm. of that idea and do you think that there might be a renewed push for that um, in 2018 I think that people who are investigating the incident shouldn't be shouldn't have a relationship with the people who are accused of the incident just like any, pretty much any other police investigation where the police don't generally have a close relationship with or a working relationship with the people who are accused. The same way with police um, 
police investigations. Well, I'd like to just thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at jrosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would people either follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the world? My Twitter way? handle is at Sarah Unsicker. It's pretty simple. Yes. yes spell that. So people- S-A-R-A-H-U-N-S-I-C-K-E-R. Thank you very much. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Thank you. No